and welcome to Trap One. So, on this episode, we're heading into the wild blue yonder, and the universe's longest corridor, where we're going to ponder the big question, which is the real Doctor Who novels? I'm checking their arm lengths at the moment. So hello, I'm Sai, and I'm your guide tonight, and I'm being joined by Mark, Fraser, Jason, and for the very first time, we've got Chris with us. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Good evening. So we're into the second special of the 60th anniversary, which didn't feature Susan, didn't feature any returning doctors, didn't feature anything that fans speculated it was going to feature but did feature someone we weren't expecting this week, which we'll get to in a bit. So, how are we all feeling, before we start, about the 60th anniversary stories so far and the new Doctor Who, David Tennant? <laughs> Chris, as a first-timer, over to you. <laughs> oh, when you said that then, the new Doctor David Tennant, all of a sudden I was like, back, oh, it's 2006. Okay, so. <laughs> But, um, yeah, um, the first one, Star, the Star Beast, I think I was a little bit, I was perhaps more fortunate than 90-something percent of Doctor Who fans in that <clears throat> I had no idea about the story because I never read the comic strips in DWM. So the the actual story was completely new to me. So I could take it at face value as like a brand new Doctor Who story. And <clears throat> I, to be honest, I, I, I quite liked the Star Beast. I thought the Star Beast was great. So I thought, oh, you know, this is looking good. And, you know, back to form. And now we've got Wild Blue Yonder. And, right, okay. <clears throat> and I just felt like last night, I just felt like it was an hour of my life I'd never get back. Wow. And I think, Jason, you had a very similar response to this story, didn't you? It is very risky offering a negative opinion about any Doctor Who story when Fraser is in the room. So I'm going to keep my head down and run for it. I have the nuanced answer about yesterday. I have a one-word answer about yesterday. And then I also have a brief overview of the two episode out of three season to date. Which order would you like it in? Right, well, go on. Let's give us a brief overview of the two out of three stories that we've had so far. It is difficult being a Doctor Who fan because we are starved for televisual content, okay? We are drowning in peripherals. We are drowning in licensed books and audio and multimedia presentations. What we don't get is the show on television. This is only Star Beast and Wild Blue Yonder are only the 32nd and 33rd new episodes in the last six years, right? So there's hardly any TV content. We all love the show very much. When any new episode comes on, it carries the weight of the nine months of Doctor Who-less television that we've all survived through. You want every episode to be the greatest episode ever. So it's very hard to be objective when an episode comes on. It needs to be great to justify the increasingly long wait between seasons. So expectations are always high. 
and now we're getting not a new doctor or any new mode of storytelling, but we're getting the continuation of stories that we already had 15 years ago. I love Catherine Tate. I think she's one of the best actresses we've ever had on the show. I am not as fond of David Tennant's Doctor, who has no special significance for me. I've been a fan of the show for nearly 40 years now, and he is a Doctor, but he's not my Doctor. I like Starbeast. I didn't have any particular attachment to the comics growing up, and I didn't read Starbeast until I was 35. I've only read it the one time. It doesn't have the weight for me that it has for... UK-based fans of a certain age, but I thought it was a good episode. Last night, well, we'll talk a little bit more about this later. You can divide last night's episode into five acts. There was the teaser with Isaac Newton. There was the prologue, or sorry, the epilogue with the surprise returning character. And then there was a three-act story in the middle. We can talk in more nuance about each of the five divisions of the story, but my one-word review of Wild Blue Yonder, that word is terrible. Hated <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, Mark, now that you've had a chance to percolate your feelings about this episode, how, how was it for you? Um, I think, as you were saying before we started, that they were going to have a good mixture of opinions. I, I'm still sitting on the fence about <laughs> this episode. Um, I'm, I'm perhaps veering in one direction. Um, okay. And I stumble into the enjoyed it camp. Um, I think because there was such a level of expectation about this episode, because we went in knowing nothing or next to nothing, um, Russell T. Davies said himself on the official Doctor Who podcast, he was saying it might have gone against him because everybody's gone in with an expectation that they're going to see and hear and meet people and characters, which the episode isn't going to deliver. I didn't really go in with that expectation, but knowing absolutely nothing, it was I was trying to second guess everything that was coming. So I probably didn't fully appreciate it on the first viewing, what I was seeing, because I was just going, oh, oh, no, it's not going to do that. Oh, oh, I'm just getting constantly surprised by what came next. Having watched it again, in hindsight, I'm starting to veer towards, actually, that was really quite good. But it, it threw me initially. And Fraser. Um, sort of go back to the, the original question as to, you know, what do you think of the 14th Doctor? What do you think of the specials so far? Um, Starbeast is one that I've, a comic that I've not read. So much like Chris, I was going in quite blind to that story. I was aware of the meat and bones of it, of Beep the Meep and, you know, um, spoilers, the Meep's actually the the evil character i knew that bit but the rest of it you know was was new enough um so you know i couldn't sit and point out which character was lifted exactly from which um which part of the comic or anything like that um it was a good episode i enjoyed it um it was you know fast paced it was fun it was exciting it was perfect sort of like saturday night television um was it a 60th anniversary story I don't necessarily think it was. It felt very much like um, this is Tennant and Tate back together again. It's David and Catherine having fun. You know, the, the new adventures of David and, and Catherine, um, as you might call it. There was very little for me to suggest that this is a new Doctor. Um, 
you know, it's David Tennant back, but essentially how much has this character changed? Is there any difference between the 10th Doctor and the 14th Doctor? I didn't get much from Star Beast. I did get a lot more from Wild Blue Yonder. Um, so to come on to that story, then I am very much in the, I enjoyed this camp. I'm very, you know, I thought it was a great, great story. Um, you know, we've brought Russell T Davies back for a reason. Um, he's very good at doing certain things. He's very good at character work. You know, he's very good at taking um, his characters, putting them in a scenario, letting them breathe, letting them, um, you know, do certain things, you know, have heart-to-hearts, have, you know, big character moments, which is exactly what this story did. He's very good at um, pulling a plot resolution out of thin air, which is exactly what he did in this one. Um, you know, it was dear smacking that to the, the nth degree, but it was a very Russell, very RTD story, I felt. Um, I don't know if you have listened to uh, Toby Haydock's A to Z of Doctor Who. On yes. BBC Sounds. Um, a is for anticipointment, which is the disappointment of what you're anticipating. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is fed into a lot of people's reaction to this. Um, we were told absolutely nothing about this story purely because they wanted us to watch a story that we knew nothing about. Not because there was any surprise cameos, not because there was anything going on. Fandom whipped itself up into a frenzy, as it does about these things, saying, you know, it's going to be Susan, it's going to be McGann, it's going to be Matt Smith. You know, he's, he's been seen on set and all the rest of it. So, you know, I can't fault... Us an episode because it wasn't what other people said it was going to be. It's like um, Praxeus, when everyone said, oh, it's going to be the Silurian, uh, sorry, not the Silurians, it's going to be the Sea Devils, or it's going to be the Autons coming back, and it was none of these things, and that didn't spoil that episode because it wasn't what someone else said it was going to be. Likewise, this one didn't, and I've always appreciated this more secretive approach to the show. I like a surprise. You know, I like to not know what's coming. And I think um, RTD has overloaded me in the run-up to Shooty Gatwa season. You know, he's given us so much and so much and so much to have an episode where I knew nothing about it going in was manna from heaven for me. It was just so lovely just to sit and watch the things unfold. Um, and there were some good surprises in there and there were some good moments where if you did know what was happening, if you did know that it was going to be clones of themselves as the enemies, it wouldn't have been as effective. You know, watching that unfold where um, Donna's in the orange room and the Doctor's in the blue room and then, you know, putting those pieces together when the Doctor walks in and then Donna walks in and actually, you know, this isn't the same person, these are... That was a beautiful moment. And then the following scene where, um, you know, they get back, they get separated and they're brought back together and you don't know which one's which. Again, not knowing was beautiful and that really was really worked. So I did wonder, is this going to be just as good on rewatch? Um, so I rewatched it this morning. Yeah, it still stands up. For me, it stands up as a, as a really sound, solid bit of, um, not just Doctor Who, but television as well good science fiction television i would say it's it's one of rtd's best stories best scripts you know it's certainly his best one since midnight 
there's a lot of the DNA in there. So, yeah, thanks for coming to my TED Talk, everyone. Sam, you want to get a word in edgeways? Tell us what you thought. Well, well, I agree with you, Fraser, actually. I was on the edge of my seat throughout this episode because I didn't know what was happening. And I um, particularly have always, since kinder, had a thing about stories where you've got to prove that you're the real person. And that always... Um, gives me a jolt of fear because that was a recurring nightmare in my childhood about not being able to prove that I was the real me and how do you do that and that existential um, crisis of knowing that you're the real you but not being able to prove it um, has sat with me for a very long time <laughs> and and so to have that replayed again sort of several times last night I thought was really good and was sort of the core of the story um, for me particularly sort of those those early bits where um well that those those sort of two conversations between the doctor and donna not knowing which one was which and watching that on the edge of my seat trying to work out which one was which and who was going to slip up and where we were and then with the four of them again all battling and say well that's exactly what you would say if you were saying this and <laughs> and all of that was was really brilliant and sort of really played to david tennant and Catherine tate's um strengths i think they were were really really good in those scenes sort of trying to convince each other and again at the very end when he picks the wrong donna i was just saying no 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 this is this all they're gonna kill her they're gonna kill her <laughs> Of course, I'm not going to kill her. But it was the same, I had the same thing last week in Starbeast that I fought for this plot every time. I'm like Sarah Jane, <laughs> thinking the Doctor is dead every week um, in the Hinchcliffe years. I, I fought for this every time, and oh, this is it. They're gonna, yeah, and we're gonna have fake Donna, and this is gonna be a big. Oh no, it's not. <laughs> He's gonna hoverboard the TARDIS and save her in time. I do love that the Doctor basically picked the wrong Donna at the end because Donna couldn't say the name of ITV's intellectual property. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's Mrs Bean. Mm-hmm. I think there's um, a lot of what Fraser has said, um, even though it's like coming from the other side of the fence from, from where I am on it, uh, is, 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 is very interesting. I mean... Would it benefit from a rewatch for me? I don't know, because um, the last episode that I really felt this disappointed with on first viewing was Deep Breath, the first Peter Capaldi uh, story. And basically, I, I, I had to stop myself from falling asleep again on, on watching that. And then, you know, I just sort of filed it under the, oh, God, that was awful type of things. And then went back to it on when I was doing my, my, my rewatch through the show and finally coming coming to finish it off of the Capaldi era. And I watched Deep Breath again. And I thought, well, that's actually a lot better than I thought. You know, and, 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 and it's a, a fairly decent story. But this one, oh, I don't, I'm not going to summon up any enthusiasm anytime soon to watch it again. Um, I mean, for the last six years or five years of the show. I mean, there's one episode I've rewatched. I've watched more than once, and that's Rosa. Um, all the rest, no. Um, but but uh, I just thought this was the brave new beginning, and I'm feeling a little bit let down by that one. 
much like Chris and I have almost identical Twitter handles, we pretty much have nearly identical opinions on this story. Intellectually, I understand that people were excited by the fact that the doctor had to choose which Donna was which, and he chose the wrong one momentarily. Here's the thing. This is not new information, all right? The lead having to choose between doppelgangers is one of the oldest dramatic cliches on television. Doctor Who did it in The Chase in 1965. Jordan Peele did a much better movie on the same subject called Us, which has, in addition to the scares and the thrills, it also has social commentary with which Wild Blue Yonder is largely lacking. Heck, the American spy drama The Scarecrow and Mrs. King did the exact same story in 1984 or 1985. So if Russell T. Davies wants to do Jordan Peele's Us in Space, that's great. If he wants to tell Midnight a second time, that's wonderful. But Midnight, I recently did my top 60 stories of all time over on Doctor Who Literature. Midnight was high on that list. This story is not on it because Midnight was a dramatic, moving story with great character work, and it had real impact. This story, we'll talk about the prologue. Prologue is very funny. I loved it. Great. It doesn't really tie into the rest of the episode. Maybe it sets up something for next week. We don't know. The first act of the story I enjoyed up to a point because the first act of this story is a 1960s Doctor Who. In 1960s Doctor Who, you're not filming in the volume. You're filming in Lime Grove D, which is about 80 feet by 60 feet. And that has to include six different sets, plus room for cameras, plus a fire exit lane circling the studio. In Lime Grove D, the best way to tell a story is to have the TARDIS materialize, have the characters walk out, and spend the next 20 minutes exploring every inch of the set and narrating what they see. This story did the exact same thing, and then it dipped back to the 60s a second time by giving us the Hads, previously seen in one of Fraser's and my mutual favorite stories, The Crotons. So it's a very throwback story in that regard, but here, instead of exploring an actual practical set, we're walking around what I believe is the volume, and they're narrating the CGI background, including those poorly animated pistons. It takes a very long time for the story to get started, and there is a nice little misdirection when the Doctor and Donna are having parallel conversations, and you're not sure if these are flashbacks, flash-forwards, and then you realize it's the alien menace of the week. But again, this sort of, you look like me, but you're the villain, this is the kind of thing we've seen before. And the CGI work, with the fake Doctor and fake Donna growing comically long arms or jaws or running down the set, Considering how much money this show has now, between Bad Wolf being bought out by Sony, a multi-billion dollar corporation, and given that Disney, another multi-billion dollar corporation, is now paying for distribution, I thought the effects weren't that great. And I was so disappointed during that chase scene, I thought it so took me out of the seriousness of the moment that I just paused the TV, went to get a snack, and I resumed ten minutes later to clear my head. And it got a little better after that. And the Doctor picking the wrong Don is great. That is a great dramatic choice. Go with it. Let Donna be caught on the ship. Let the Doctor land on Earth. And let him take half an hour to realize he has the wrong Donna. Coming back to the 60s, we did that again. The Doctor picked the wrong face for Jamie in The Mind Robber. And we go through a whole episode and a half with somebody else playing Jamie. Terrific. But that choice is undone in a bad CGI effect of fake Donna being dropped down a poorly animated CGI ramp in the new TARDIS set. 
So the one brave, dramatic choice this episode makes is undone in about 45 seconds. Then we come to the epilogue, which I loved, but the main part of the story itself, I didn't find it original, I didn't find it dramatic, I didn't find it well animated. It just was a complete misfire for me. Sorry. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk, the TED Radio <laughs> Hour. This is Manoush Zomorodi. <laughs> Can I can I can I can I say something about when I, I was looking this morning to see what the general Twitter reaction to it to it was, and the funniest comment I saw there was 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 I watched Doctor Who last night. The Doctor went to the end of the universe and he found this mysterious ship, and I watched the episode and it all ended with a huge explosion. But enough about Underworld. What was Wild Blue Yonder like? I <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it. Well, Fraser here is one of Underworld's foremost champions, so that's probably a good thing. Yep, yep. Um, I'm surprised you didn't um, think of the sensor rights, Jason. Oh, I was thinking of it in my in my head um, as Chris was talking about a spaceship at the edge of the universe, and I love the sensor rights. But the sensor rights is a great dramatic script where the monsters are philosophical aliens who are scared of the dark. Here, the monsters have poorly animated arms and jaws, so. Well, I was. Oh, I was so a, it's like Ark in Space then. <laughs> <laughs> Ark in Space made bubble wrap scary. <laughs> the bit where he has to take the lock out the TARDIS and then. Oh, oh yes. 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 Mm-hmm. With the non solid <laughs> screwdriver. But um, it's interesting because the, the effects of the Doctor with, and Donna with the arms is, is practical effects. It's not CGI. It's, you know, um, there's the Doctor who unleashed and just. You know, maybe it's half an hour before we've started recording. The director Tom Kingsley has has put a, a tweet out on Twitter, still Twitter, it's not X, um, where he's he's demonstrating exactly the the practical effects that they have done on that. So there is a lot of, of green screen involved. Um, it's not the volume, unfortunately, but it is um, Bad Wolf Studio down in Bad Wolf Bay or wherever it's parked. You know, but it is it is a lot of green screen which. Um, gives it that sort of um, underworld effect. You know, you think, well, you know, this is, you know, underworld was the start, and this is this is where we've ended up. And isn't technology wonderful? Um, but to kind of go back to what you're saying, Jason, about it being nothing really that new and original, I would I would tend to agree with that. I think there's nothing, you know, massively different that we haven't seen before. You know, we've got um, it's. It, 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 it does share a lot of DNA with Midnight, and there was a lot of um, the same sort of thing of, you know, this is the the um, the alien menace, alien of the week or whatever, is this unknown entity which is just copying humans. So that did seem very similar, and I think it would be interesting if there was more cast members. You know, you could have went in a very different direction with this. You could have had, you know something more akin to the thing where it's like well one of yours is is the ganger you know because that was the other thing it reminded us of the gangers from rebel flesh and uh, one of yours is the ganger and you can see rtd having a lot of fun with a very small cast and really delving into um, what he does in midnight which is the sort of um the evil within the human psyche you know what happens when you know, you know, you turn people into monsters when you turn on each other. That could really well played out with, you know, two or three more people in the cast and trying to figure out which one was was the alien. But he's only got two. He's only got Doctor and Donna, so he kind of 
is doing something a little bit different with that. Where it really stood out, though, is is in those moments when, you know, you're left with just the Doctor and Donna having to do, have a chat with each other, basically. Um, you know, I said at the start of my TED Talk that, you know, the 14th Doctor doesn't feel like a new Doctor, but what you do see in this is a, the Doctor is a lot more open than we've seen him before, you know, even even as Jodie, Jodie's doctor was very close and very socially anxious and, you know, didn't want to open up to Yaz or anyone else. Um, the 14th doctor seems quite happy to open up and talk. I mean, that, that um, little monologue where he's, he's talking about the TARDIS, you know, what happens when the TARDIS flies away and what if it lands somewhere and, you know, starting to think about Ghost Monument, you know, what if it's, you know, becomes a, a totem and people worship it and then they realise it's nothing to worship but they build a city around it then the city falls and collapses into dust and the TARDIS is just left still there. That was beautiful and that's really where this this episode came to life for me in moments like that. You know, Donna talking about her family, the Doctor talking about his family, the TARDIS, um, the edge of creation, you know, looking out of that um, window at the front of the ship and just that really quiet moment where he's just like talking about this is nothing. I've gone as far as I can, and just the the beauty and the magnitude of the expanse out there, you know, that's where it really came home to me. Well, I found that sort of with the element of having a more emotionally open doctor, the having the rug pull of the moment when he is about to say to Donna, "Oh, I've missed you so much," and then she just melts into the floor in front of him. He's he's never been quite so vulnerable and open with yeah. a companion before and never displayed such open affection for one. And it's not even Donna. <laughs> it, was, it was a really cruel thing to do. And Russell T Davies does put cruel things into his scripts and into all his series. And it gives you, gives you rug pulls and tugs at your heartstrings and gives you miss, you know, just all these social situations and, it was, I found that the driving force behind the episode was probably the fact that he'd brought David and Catherine back together and he was exploiting that fact with this episode very much. Um, we've got the big, bold star beast and then we've got whatever's come next and we know that that's going to have a massive cast and there's going to be so much involved. This was much more self-contained and taking advantage of the fact that you had Tennant and Tate back together again make the most of that absolutely exploit it for all it's worth you've got them going into areas that they didn't go before when they were in series four together they've got a much greater rapport than they did before there's a lot more emotional chemistry there and humor some of the interactions particularly at the beginning like with the sonic screwdriver and the non-sonic screwdriver <laughs> it was all played so lightly and not as broadly as they did 15 years ago so i found it I've seen the evolution of their portrayal and I loved that a lot. I like, I wasn't the biggest advocate of the 10th Doctor, but I'm loving these very small, subtle changes in the performance and the portrayal of the 14th, who is ostensibly the same person. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating, isn't it? Because he is the same, but he's not quite the same and he's a bit more circumspect and he's not quite so gnashy teeth and over mm -hmm. the top as before so the the performance feels a bit more nuanced and i liked i liked the anger when he was on his own 
after they talked about um, the flux and and the timeless children and his anger and bashing bashing the set to bits was was really really well played, and that what what I'm sort of getting is that that feeling of you're meeting an old friend for the first time in possibly thousands of years for the Doctor because of what happened in Heaven Sent and, and everything else, and 15 years for Donna. And where do you start? Where do you start about updating about what, what you've done? Do you just sort of carry on like you saw each other yesterday, or do you start saying, well, and then I did this and this and this and this and go through all the traumas that the Doctor has been through in that time, or finding out he didn't do the time war after that was such a huge thing of, well, everything that has happened sort of ever since, you know, it's it's a big thing. It And I like the fact that David Tennant isn't just coming in and giving us the 10th Doctor. There's a slightly different dimension to his performance. And that's fascinating me because I really like the 14th Doctor for all mm-hmm. the reasons that I liked the 10th Doctor but didn't love him. But I really love the 14th Doctor unexpectedly. I really like the point that Mark made about this being a character piece for the Doctor and Donna, and just giving David Tennant and Catherine Tate things to act around. That's a really good point. I think my favorite character in the main body of the story yesterday, though, is the space jockey, the space horse. So I've already mentioned Jordan Peele's Us. There are two other very obvious movie comparisons here, both about a team of scientists discovering some tragedy that happened in the past and trying to work out what happened. You have the original Ridley Ridley Scott alien where they come across the ruins of the space jockey and they have to work out from there what happened and they miss all the obvious clues and then the alien gets on board their ship. The other obvious comparison is John Carpenter's remake of The Thing from 1982 where the Outpost 31 scientists go to the Norwegian base and they see the wreckage of what the thing did to that base. Here, seeing the space jockey floating outside, having committed suicide, you know, the second they said, you know, the airlock opened and then closed three years ago, my obvious thought was, ah, the crew must have committed suicide because a terrible thing must have happened. And it turns out 20 minutes later, that's exactly what it was. There's a really great story to be told around the space jockey. All we see is the remains of the horse-shaped skeleton or whatever it was. Um, That was a nice little twist. And Doctor Who is good when it piggybacks on these horror movies like Us or The Thing or Alien. Certainly, the Hinchcliffe era also did Alien before Alien was made. And it did The Thing. It did The Thing from Another World via The Seeds of Doom. So it's great that we're piggybacking on these horror movies. I just didn't like the presentation or the production or the mode of storytelling last night. Maybe if I hadn't recognized all the antecedents, maybe I would have enjoyed it more. But I'm like, this needs to be as good as The Thing or as good as Alien or as good as Us. And for me, it was 0 for 3 on all of them. See, I quite like the realization of the episode. For me, I was sort of, I was trying to be as objective as possible about it because I knew that I was going to be talking about it, um, rather than letting myself completely get enmeshed in it in the first viewing. But technically, I think a lot of the production team would have been challenged by this, seeing the stuff that I've seen on Unleashed and that the director has shared on his Twitter just this evening. The things that managed to pull off, I think it was as well as being a character piece and a challenge for the actors. It was a case of let's test the absolute boundaries of what our 
production team can achieve. <clears throat> and they've pulled off, certainly for me, I found it a really impressive looking episode. Um, but I know I went online straight after it finished and people were saying, that's the worst CGI I've ever seen. That's terrible with all this money. Why did it look like that? looked fantastic to me my perception was that it was really good and there were a lot of still there were a lot of standing sets and practical effects as well thrown in like the arms um it was only at the very end when i saw the puppeteer credit that i went wait a minute that was a practical effect and then you watch unleashed and you see that they made these 3d printed hands of tenants made to massive scale um they're trying so hard they're pushing the boundaries and that's great to see, because you, when you think back to when Doctor Who first came back in 2005, they probably would have spent, you know, the budget they would have had to achieve these computer graphics, they probably would have managed maybe eight shots. They managed to make, what, 80% of the episode against green screen. Yep. Would, would you say, though, that that, that starts becoming um, more sort of, oh, look, you know, we can do this, and aren't we clever? We can spend all this money on effects, and 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 then so we just shoehorn a little bit of plot in here somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a difficult one because I don't. I feel there was a lot of plot myself. Uh, mm. I was on the edge of my seat throughout, and I was was gripped by this episode. So, you know, it's. It's it's always a tricky one, isn't it? When you come up with with two polar opposite views, um, and sort of are trying to to argue your case. But I thought it looked beautiful. I I was um, really bowled over by the look of the spaceship and the very long corridor, and I loved the the hovering truck. Which and I liked that the truck was possibly a bit of a homage to all those season twelve electric vehicles that were trundling around the place, only sort of moved up sort of slightly as well. Um, but for me, I I didn't spot any effects work that didn't work for me. I I really yeah. I thought it looked beautiful, yeah. and particularly I loved the shot of the outside of the spaceship when the drone goes out and sort of pans down it. And sort of the realization that there's no stars there, and it's just on a black background, and it's this black ship on a black background. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that looked looked really cool. Yeah, I managed to pull off quite a lot of directorial flourishes. You know, you're working with a lot of stuff. They were using new technology that gave them a rough estimation of what they were working against, which I thought was really clever. But you were having things like the depth of focus that corridor set at times was suddenly brought into focus and yeah, focus and. Just the technical ability. There's things going on there that we've never seen before in Doctor Who, even some minute little things um, that they've been able to pull off. It's it, For me, looking at it from that perspective and trying to be as objective as possible, I think that's gonna, that'll be quite, that'll be exciting for the crew to work on and probably tantalising for people who want to understand how TV and film is made. I think... The thing for me worth pointing out is that this was made last year. This was made in you know the the spring slash summer of, of last year before any Disney money was involved. Mm. You know this is the BBC funding Doctor Who via Bad Wolf, and yes, Bad Wolf does have is owned by Sony now. But you know to what extent is Sony putting money in? To what extent is Sony saying, "Oh, he's making Doctor Who now"? Oh, well, there you go, have another another couple of million. Mm-hmm. You know to to go into that kitty then, and I think. You know what you might see is that you know Bad Wolf have got better toys 
to play with. Um, certainly, again, from the Unleashed, one of the things that they have now is the ability, um, when they are doing the green screen, for the director to be able to see what the background is going to look like. You know, so you know they can see on the camera well this is what they're acting against, and you know I, I gather that's pretty new technology. So yeah, they might have a few new toys and whatnot, but I don't think we were necessarily seeing last night anything, you know, that is yet to come. I think when we do start seeing a bit of Disney money in there and a bit more of a Disney influence, we might see a few different things, or we might be, you know, there might be something like the the TARDIS interior is now. You know, the original TARDIS interior, for example, could have been quite smaller than what it is now because that's a bloody massive set. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, you know, you compare the 14th Doctor's set stand and set to the first Doctor's stand and set and it is, like, magnitudes bigger. So, you know, it could well be that Disney said, no, nah, I want that bigger and they've had to do pickups of, of TARDIS scenes with... Um, with bigger. But I think, you know, the effects, just like, you know, Simon said, the worked for me, you know. Um, but I, this is this is the thing about me. Um, I've never been the type of person that's been took out of Doctor Who by the effects, you know. So I could watch Underworld perfectly well and see what they're going for, and enjoy it just as much as I could watch Wild Blue Yonder mm. and enjoy that because you know, as long as I can see what you're going for, as long as I can see what you're aiming for, you know, if it's you know tinfoil Vardens or you know, CSO backdrops or whatever, it works for me. You know, it's 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 never been an issue for me. So other people, you know, if, if it is, if that's something that's, that takes you out of that story, then fair enough, but never has been for me. And it wasn't what the effects were like in terms of technology. It was what the effects represented. Big floppy arms, a big floppy jaw. This is the kind of story we're telling now. Whether that was a puppet or a CGI, I'm not interested in the Doctor and Donna being chased by giants with floppy jaws and floppy arms. That's not really my wheelhouse for the show. I, I did think that worked, though, because it was quite a, a suspenseful and scary story as well. You know, you, you get that bit, that first realisation that, you know, the Doctor and Donna are not talking to the Doctor and Donna. They are talking to some the alien of the week, and you don't know what that alien is. You know, is this a... Is it a ghost? Is it a mirage? Is it a... What is it? And, you know, for the bit where the kind of... You know, they give the game away, really. You know, they've, the Doctor's opened up to Donna, Donna's opened up to the Doctor, and, and you know, both the, the, the doppelgangers are are saying, my arms are too long. You know, that that's, that's going to be the next Are You My Mummy? Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think the realisation of that is quite classic Doctor <laughs> Who in its way, because it was funny and grotesque yes looking at it and i was like i don't know whether i want to laugh or if i'm getting an ick factor here it was there was something very unpleasant about the doctor dragging these massive arms behind him but also it was really hilarious especially when catherine comes through and she's just got the single arm something about it amused me as much as it did horrify me um but it depends on what you find horrific and scary as well so you, you have to bring your own um, you know what, what's your what, you know your your money may, may vary um, on what, what's scary on what's comic. Absolutely, and having had um, a, a very similar reaction that Jason and Chris are having to a very classic Doctor Who story that everyone loves, that I that everyone finds incredibly scary, and coming out of that thinking, 
that wasn't scary at all. Um, for those of you who have never heard me talk about this, this is Blink, and I didn't get the Weeping Angels being scary whatsoever, and that was not my wheelhouse, and that was, didn't work for me at all. And so I can quite understand why suddenly a story doesn't work for you if the central scare or the central villain doesn't work, then that's always going to be be a bit of a problem. For me, I I found what I found interesting about the the fake Dr. Donna was that the possibility that they could do anything and suddenly they were getting big or they could get small or whatever. And I found that sort of most terrifying and the fact that they could reach out and suddenly reach further away than possible or move quite quickly or not move quickly. That that worked scary wise for me um but i can see why you might find that ridiculous or it might not work for you as as well so you know that central point is always going to be a sticking point because what you find scary or what what thrills you is always going to be different to 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 someone else can i ask can i ask can i ask something about you know i said that i took uh, I went on to Twitter this morning just to see what 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 the fans made of it. And the other thing that um, that somebody was saying is that so the TARDIS is thrown into the far future, the end of the universe, because Donna spills a cup of tea in the TARDIS. Well, didn't this happen in the Christmas Invasion, which and and, and it was like the exact thing that was needed to bring David Tennant round. So you've got two totally different reactions. Maybe the the TARDIS doesn't like coffee as much as it likes tea. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing that people were banging on about this morning is Isaac Newton. Yeah. I think think, think we're all going to have a sort of uh, different view of that. I mean, to me, it was just like sort of, you know, what the hell was that to do with the rest of the episode? It just seemed like out of place. It's like, we've got three minutes. Let's do a funny bit with Isaac Newton. And yet it didn't have any more relevance to the rest of the story. Yeah, I thought that might have had some sort of payoff other than beyond the Mavity joke, mm. um, which I still think very funny. Um, but I do remember reading in RTD's production notes, did Disney not at some point encourage him to change the opening scene for a story? They said, we've got more money to play with. You could do something else different. I wonder if it affected this episode or if it's something to come in the future. I remember that, and I think that was Shooty's first story. Ah, oh, it might have been. So I, I don't know if that's um, Church on Ruby Road, Arlene, or whatever it's called, or the first hmm. one of, of Series A, as I'm now calling it. Um, but I, I remember that as well. But, yeah, I mean, Isaac Newton, I loved that scene. Um, I loved, you know... I loved the way that there was no payoff for it, if that mm. makes sense. I loved the fact that, you know, it's just a, a little scene to set up a joke and that joke runs through the episode. So you have the joke of mm. Mavity and then Mavity is a thing throughout the episode and you're fully expecting it to go back and be undone at the end and it's not. And that's what I loved about it, the fact that it's still next episode in in the giggle if someone mentions the force that attracts mass to mass. They are going to call it Mavity. And I think that whole Mavity bit just brings a little bit of lightness and humour into what is quite a deep, dark story overall. 
and Doctor Who's always got that hint of humour in it. So it just yeah. brought that little something in those, especially in those initial scenes, it lulls you into a false sense of security. Maybe things aren't going to be quite as scary as you imagine, and then that subsides, and then the story really comes to the fore from that point onwards. It was just a, it, it certainly it tickled me anyway. Hmm. Well. I think, I suspect that the Newton bit is going to set up next week. There was also a bit of foreshadowing when the Doctor talks about how throwing salt and invoking superstition at the end of the universe could lead to consequences. I suspect that's going to be our sci-fi explanation for the return of Neil Patrick Harris characters next week. Maybe the Mavity also plays into that. I want to jump back to the main body of the story. One thing I didn't mind was a plot point borrowed from Terminus. You have a spaceship counting down to the end of the universe in slow motion. That I thought was pretty nifty. Although if you're reaching for a plot point from Terminus as a compliment, maybe that's uh, <laughs> a, a bit of a stretch. There was a lot of Terminus in this, I thought. I thought, you know, the um, the seat, you know, the big giant spaceship, the talk about the end of creation... You know, I thought there was a lot of terminus in this, and I'm very surprised that it's Jason that's bringing it up and not Simon, because we all know Simon <laughs> <laughs> Maybe well, I'm talking too much. Do you know, I, I sat there, and I know, Fraser, you messaged me after the the episode, and we, we were chatting about it, and I hadn't spotted the terminus factor at all, <laughs> which is dreadful. <laughs> by, by a strange coincidence... I was out Friday night at a play in, uh, in Sheffield and uh, got to meet Liza Goddard from, oh, the, from oh. Terminus. There's a coincidence. <laughs> See, everything comes back to Terminus this yep. year. <laughs> Whether you like it or not. <laughs> so Doctor Who based on uh, based on Terminus and Underworld. Wow. You said that yeah, too. That, that's what unexpected comebacks no one saw coming with Russell T. Davis. <laughs> And the Crotons, don't forget the Crotons, the Hads, comes from the Crotons. Mm-hmm. That's bad. Nods to the sensor, right? Terminus, the Crotons, Underworld. The, I mean, it, Jason, you said it as well. You know, you said there's there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of things that you recognise in this, and, and I recognised a lot of things, but, you know, that just kind of added to the, the fun for me because, it's like, ah, you know, it's like a gang of, oh, it's like Terminus, and oh, it's like... Um, there was, was elements of like uh, listen as well, you know, with the clanking outside. It's like, oh, this is yeah. like listen. So um, when I'm looking for something that feels a bit anniversary, that feels a bit like, you know, this is celebrating um, the last 60 years of this show. You know, you throw as many of them in as you want. You know, you could you could literally write scroll Garm was here on the walls <laughs> and I'd be happy with that, you know. Yeah, and you've got just the regular cast exploring a spaceship like the Ark in Space or having an episode almost to themselves, which is very traditional Doctor Who, that they land, explore, find things. And maybe it is a bit of back to basics. And it's it's probably an extension as well, because when they did the silence in the library, I remember part of the pre-publicity of that, Russell kept saying we've got David and Catherine alone for pretty much the first 10, 15 minutes of this episode. That hasn't been done in years. We've never just had the Doctrine companion exploring a set. Um, I wonder if it's a, just an extension of that for him. I mean, he obviously loves working with the, with the actors. 
And he went, well, this is a perfect opportunity to just take that and build upon that idea. Let's put them in a scenario where it's just them. And what will we, how we'll make that work? We'll have them play off one another. Um, so it was. I think it's it, Russell always goes back to things he's done before, and there's tones and there's themes and there's tropes that reappear, like the um, things like faith and superstition come up a lot in his work. So when the salt appeared, and the doctor said at the end that he was worried about invoking that superstition, it's for an atheist. Russell's very fascinated by faith and belief and superstition, and so there was there was there was a lot of things that are not just Doctor Who tropes, but Russell T Davies themes in amongst this. Um, so I was getting, I was just fascinated because I was I was going, oh, that's 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 a classic Russell thing to do. Um, I was just noting things as it went along, so it was quite as as a big fan and advocate of Russell's work. That was it. It appealed to me enormously from that perspective. And you know. As as we sort of touched on earlier, if you've got Catherine Tate and David Tennant, then why not give them an episode to themselves? Because they can more than carry it. They're, they're, and it's really interesting to see how their acting has developed over 15 years as well. So, yeah, I, I would be feeling exactly the same, that you want to showcase your two lead actors while they're the leads, again, of this show. And it's only a limited amount of time you've got to play with with these two actors and these two characters so why not exploit that to the very limit and push what they can do do you think that 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 this is the episode that you could do that in because there's going to be so much happening next week definitely i think Mm -hmm. um obviously starting you can look at this as a as basically a three episode series Mm -hmm. from rtd and um, you know, he, he likes to follow a structure in his in his series. You know, he likes to have his earth based opening story. He likes to take you forwards in time and backwards in time, following that. Then he likes to bring you down to earth, back to earth for a story or two, and then he likes to take you back off. Um, and then he'll do something a little bit more experimental. And then he'll have his um, sort of um, low paced, low budget, quiet Scary. episode mm. before going into the bells and whistles finale. So if you kind of squish that into three stories, obviously Star Beast is your um, Earth-based... Partners um, in Crime. Partners in Crime. It's uh, your season opener. Yeah, it's a season yeah. opener. I know he's got to reintroduce um, the Doctor and Donna. He didn't at all go to anything to introduce the 14th Doctor as a new Doctor. He just walked out the TARDIS and straight into the adventure. Um, but he had to get Donna and the Doctor back together, working at some point. We know that next week is going to be the giggle, which is going to be the um, what would normally be your two-part set-on-Earth finale, where um, the Earth is going to be destroyed, or the universe is going to be destroyed, or every universe, the multiverse, is going to be destroyed, and the Doctor has to stop it somehow. Um, in between, then, what do you do? So, you know, it's very obvious... You know that he's went for that sort of quieter, lower budget one because this is all you know apart from the Isaac Newton scene and the the cameo at the end that we still need to talk about. You know this is all set in studio. It's all studio based. It's all CGI. You know it's just two members of cast. Um, you know three members if you include the person counting down. Um, 
four if you want to include Jimbo the robot, who mm-hmm. I still haven't thought about. <laughs> um, so this is the, you know, the sort of like the low budget one. So you can see him thinking, well, what am I going to do? I've got three specials. So if I just do, you know, cut a, you know, cut a few things out of here, I just have the two mains. No location. I can move my budget into the first one, and I can move it into the the second one. So the giggle, I think, you know, it's got. A, if we look at the trailers we've had so far, the giggle's got a lot of work to do next week, mm-hmm. and it's gonna do a lot of work. It's gonna have a lot um, of action and a lot of characters going on there. Star Beast, we know, did have a lot going on um, in terms of budget. You know, so yeah, it it makes obvious sense for him to say, right, so we'll slow it down in the middle. And we will give Tennant and Tate that opportunity to just, you know, have some hang time together, because this is the type of story that really like kind of lives and dies on how well your performances are. Um, mm. You look at Midnight, you look at um, David Tennant, and is it Leslie Sharp? Yeah. You know, those two carry that story. You know, you've got other people around as well. But, you know, the crux of the stories of those two together and without that key performance, Midnight isn't quite the episode that it is. Without Tenet and Tate doing what they do so well, this episode isn't quite the episode that it is. I know you guys don't think it was it <laughs> to start with, but for me, you know, without that, so by all means, that's what he's done and fair play. I wonder what a casual viewer would make of this episode, though. That was one of the things that was nagging me a bit. I think... It's got lots of great ideas and concepts that I think will probably, you know, every episode is somebody's first episode. There will be a child that will have watched that and suddenly they're going to be interested in science and physics and astrophysics in a way that they've never been before because of just that one speech. But equally, there might be people who've never watched Doctor Who before who just did not know what to make of that. And I think that's why I was quite on the fence about it because it's not your it's not your atypical Doctor Who story. And when you've only got three specials with with um, David Tennant, David Tennant, Catherine Tate, he's gone out on a limb here, Russell T Davies, by doing something so out of the ordinary with this story. Mm. Um, so I would want, I, I would love to know what an outsider's perspective, what a casual viewer, what their perception of this episode actually is. I mean, I've watched this with both my children. Um... In fact, I watched it with with my youngest um, twice because he watched it last night, but he was on his iPad. Mm-hmm. Um, my eldest child is perhaps not a casual viewer um, because he does enjoy Doctor Who. He's enjoyed um, all the Jodie Whittaker stuff for the most part. We've watched all that together. Um, things like the Happiness Patrol and Remembrance of the Daleks, he was quite happy to sit and watch with us. So he's not quite as casual, but you know he was really, really into this one. Mm-hmm. You know, he loved um, Star Beast um, last week. He loved the Meep. You know, he was switched on enough to know to ask us about halfway through, you know, is the Meep a bad guy, Daddy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so he kind of knew what was going there. And he was he was well into this one. He loved watching um, this one. And he was, you know, at the end, he was like, he's got the wrong one. He's got the wrong daughter. That's, that's the wrong daughter. I was like, no, it's fine. Man. No, this is what happens. It's... And you know, you've always got to choose and you always pick the right one. It's like, no, he's picked the wrong one. He's like, maybe he's, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, actually, you're right, son. Um, <laughs> so he was well into it. I watched it again this morning when I got up with my youngest and, you know, he was a lot more into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, 
again, he was still sitting with his iPad, but you know, he was watching it a lot and he was asking questions like, what's, what's, where are they go? He's five year old, bless him. You know, where are they going now? What's that man doing in there? Hmm. Is that room hot, daddy? You know, so you can tell he's, he's kind of getting into it as well. So, um, what the adult casual viewer thinks, um, I wouldn't know, but I always, I always think, you know, the, the casual viewer is, is the all time nemesis of Doctor Who. <laughs> and the nemesis of Doctor Who fandom. Exactly. The ultimate villain. We're always trying to second guess what they're thinking. Yeah. And it's always going through your head because we're we, it's kind of ingrained in us, I think, particularly yeah. those of well, all of us have been watching Doctor Who for a long time. So you're always trying to think, well, what if the public don't what like it? Oh my god. <laughs> I, think, I think what Mark has said here is 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 it's very, very good point. Because I actually said it last night. I watched it with my wife. Um, my wife is, um, is is quite a good, if you like, um, typical viewer in that she loves New Who, hates the old series, just can't take it seriously. Um, so we watched it together last night. And at the end, she sort of looked at me and said, you didn't like that, did you? And I said, oh, no, it was a bit sort of... Uh, you know, no, it wasn't for me. But more importantly, I said, what did you make of it? And she said, yeah, she said, I thought it was quite good, quite interesting. So if you like, that's a good thing from the general viewpoint because Doctor Who shouldn't be made for the fans. It's it, 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 it's made for everybody. Yeah. And and, and if, if, if Jen's going to turn around and say, yeah, that was okay for a story that I thought was... You know, <laughs> not one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, we, we as fans are bringing a perception, regardless of how little information we had going in. We had we we all probably had an, ima- an imagined idea of where this story might have gone. But if Jen found it all right, that's 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 fine. That's good, that's isn't great. It? Yeah. yeah, you've you've got mm-hmm. some attention. They've sat through it. They've not got any obvious complaints. Um, they're not going to do a podcast about it. So <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and try and pour it, uh, pull it apart. But uh, if they've enjoyed it, that's great. That might, that might bring them back next week. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think she's got, the, she got a choice about next week. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, the one thing we have to talk about before we finish is the last few minutes and our last chance to see Bernard Cribbins in action. I had no and idea that was coming at all. I've, I've no. Heard it say, say, and, and, and I, I even wondered if it was a CGI, AI type of, of, of thing, but but no, it's uh, it's Bernard. Yay. Oh, it was it was yeah. so good to see him. I mean, he made me cry so much when he was last in the series. When he was when he said, you know, it's the end of series four. When he says she was better with you, and then when they have the speech on the ship about you know the doctor saying he'd be proud to have Wilf as his father, all those things. Just Bernard Cribbins. I think we've all got. He carries a lot of weight and emotion for British viewers. Certainly, we all we all have a perception mm-hmm. of him and a fondness for him. So to see him again, and he was so vital and so vibrant. You know, he's 93 years old, and he he brings the energy to that, as much energy as he would have done 60 or 70 years ago if he was playing the same role. Um, so it was, it was really touching to see him, and he gets a little send-off. And that's, I think, last week when it was intimated that perhaps he had died, I, I, mm. I was sitting and literally saying, saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> 
because <laughs> I want uh, the, the getting to see him one last time meant a lot. I mean, we knew that he was going to be in the trilogy at some point because there were photos released by the production office last year with him on set in the wheelchair, probably taken during this recording block. What amazes me is that I don't know what the date of filming was. It was sometime in 2022. Vernon Cribbins dies, I think, July 27th. This was probably filmed within the last 90 days of his life you would never know that he had aged a day from 2009 when they shot the end of time because he had not lost, to use an American baseball expression, had not lost a mile off his fastball. He was just as energetic and as appealing on screen as he was the last time we saw him. And this is a man with weeks to live. So that not only was it a great cameo, but that was also poignant, the realization that this is probably the very last bit of work that he ever did in his very, very long life. And he crushed it as if he was 30 years younger. So while this was not part of the episode proper, this is more of a teaser for next week, and time will tell if he's going to be in the giggle. This was a great final 120 seconds for the episode, and it put me right back in a good mood again. So seeing him was just brilliant, to coin a phrase. Um, I mean, Russell has come out on Instagram and said that that's it for Bernard, unfortunately. Uh, um mm-hmm. He said, you know, they the did want to do more with him, but you just wasn't well enough. So the scene that they've got with him is, is it? Um, you know, there will be a reference to Wilf in the giggle, but we won't actually see see Bernard on screen. Um, and yeah, he's. You know, what else? What else can we say about about Bernard Cribbins? I mean, Simon, me and you did the the tribute on Trap One. We did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to Bernard Cribbins, and you know, spoke at length about, you know, how wonderful he was, not just in Doctor Who, but throughout his career. Um, and we spoke about, you know, the the realization that Russell had of what he had with Bernard, you know, from the minute he walked onto set on Voyage of the Damned, you know, and then when you had the opportunity to bring him back in as as Donna's granddad. Um, and then just as that series went on, just giving him more and more to do until you get to the point where he's, he's casting him as the companion in, you know, end of time. Um, and yeah, he's just, he does, he does, he just knocks every scene out of the park. Um, you know, he brings everything you want from Wilf into that sort of 120 seconds. You know, it's the, the emotion, the, the vitality, um, the, you know, um, the love for Donna and the Doctor and, you know, that, that sort of old soldier mentality. It's just everything just wrapped up. Yeah, and the protectiveness of his yes. family as yes. well, which we'd seen, obviously, a lot yeah. through the series, particularly in Turn Left, yeah. where he, yeah. And it, there, was, there was still that question mark hanging over because we knew we'd filmed scenes, but then we knew that he'd passed away not long after, so there was that question mark um, over whether had he filmed enough to be included, mm-hmm. um, would his scenes have to, you know, hit the cutting room floor because they, they should have, they were intended to be bigger, but he didn't manage to, to fill them all. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you had the scene in Starbeast last week where it was, you know, leading up to, yeah, Wilf's passed away, and then they just turn around and say, no, you're Muppet, he's in unit 
<laughs> you, know, you know, sheltered accomodation. I um, fell for it. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. always fell for it. As I said, <laughs> but it was. It, it could well have been. It could, you know, well have been yeah. a bit of writing in there just to kind of, you know, work around the fact that, um, mm. that Bernard Cruz was no longer with us. I mean, mm-hmm. we, again, we knew that um, David Tennant, Catherine Tate had had to go back and do pickups and had to re shoot some extra scenes not long after Bernard passed away. So there was always that question of, well, are they having to go back now and re-record stuff to to work that around that? So um, it was, yeah, I was still a bit up and down as to whether, you know, those scenes would actually feature. Um, so to have them there just pop up at the end was, you know, one of the best, best surprises. I know there was no surprises. There was none of the... Um, well, how did Russell describe it as, you know, the the ghost of William Hartnell riding the garm through the <laughs> corridor? <laughs> he's, he's done an interview where he literally mm-hmm. says that. Um, you know, there was none of that, but there was that beautiful bit at the end. Yeah, you know, and just, just the sheer warmth between him and Catherine Tate, and him and David Tennant, and then the three of them together yeah. was was palpable. And it's one of those scenes, I think, that sort of rides the cusp of between the characters and the actors themselves. And you can see it all played out on screen and they're all absolutely delighted that Bernard is there with them and Wilf is there with them. And I think the lines are a bit blurred and it's more beautiful for that. Mm -hmm, It's just lovely to, to see him one last time. And just for those few minutes was, was, was brilliant. And then the tribute card at the very end of the episode was, was, yeah, yeah, yeah well deserved and yeah. yeah up there with all the other people who've had their their um their cards at the end of an episode but yeah mm-hmm. it, yeah i'm glad he was there even yeah. if it was just a small bit i'm glad he managed to do it and it's obviously made a difference to him at the end of his life when he was unwell and the fact that he came to the read through and did all of that and when he probably didn't have to and they'd have probably they'd have said just turn up on set and know your lines that'll be enough but he still did that I and mean, that shows what a man he was yeah yeah real real pro and it just gives it such a a poignancy um, yeah just hearing that voice again was yeah. again as you said mark for for those of us who grew up in the uk we grew up hearing his voice a lot so just he- having that one last time was was wonderful. Yep. <laughs> it's like a big hug. Yes. Yes. So I think that might be it. Unless anyone's got anything burning that they, they want to, to cover before we, we close. <laughs> I'll take no, that as a nod. So did not burn for me. This was just a big meh. <laughs> but I've made my case quite clear already. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the Wild Blue Yonder. And as you could hear, there were, were a range of opinions on this episode, and I don't think we're all going to agree. But that's Doctor Who for you. We could we'll be arguing this for the next 40 years, and that'll be fine. <laughs> so join us next week when we will be taking a look at the giggle um jason you will be back to host that episode i believe yes and i am hopefully in a much better mood (laughs) (laughs) and having heard me on two i will be bowing out here but i will be very very interested to hear um what you think um 
So you can find Trap One as at Trap One underscore on Twitter and at Trap One on Blue Sky. And you can find all the other episodes of Trap One at trapone.podbean.com, where you'll find our episode last week on the Star Beast and mine and Fraser and Denise and UK Jason talking about um, Bernard Cribbins in our tribute that we recorded last summer, amongst many, many others. Chris, where can we find you? Um, well, um, basically you could find me on, on at Doctor Who Novels, that's D-O-C-T-O-R, Novels, Doctor Who (laughs) Novels, otherwise you'll get Jason, um, and, uh, I don't know, I'll be around the place, I'm, 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 uh, Jason, are we still doing, doing a thing on Tuesday or Wednesday this week? I believe it is, uh, Wednesday at this point, but yes, I'll double check with you on PM. Okay, brilliant. So um, um, I'm going to be doing something, and I'd love to join you guys again. Um, Lovely. We'd love uh, to have you again, Chris. We'll be in touch. Great. And uh, enjoy the giggle. I think there's going to be a lot happening. And uh, I don't don't know, with Shooty, um, I've seen him in glimpses, and that guy has got such presence that, you know, he comes on and says, what the hell is happening here? what the hell is going on and he says one line and you think well that is the doctor mm-hmm. and i think that um i'm just hoping he lives up to it yeah i think we hey, all are hey, <laughs> hey, hey he can't be worse he can't be worse than what we've had in the last five years can we? Here we go. <laughs> so our other doctor who novels where can we find you <laughs> you can find me on twitter at doctor who novels but as opposed to Chris, I am DR Who Novels. I took the account first. I've been on Twitter for longer, but Chris has certainly done much more with the account than I have with his polls. I am hoping to leave Twitter forever by the end of the year, so you can also find me no. on Blue Sky. And you can find my solo project podcast, Doctor Who Literature, which will feature a forthcoming interview with the other Doctor Who novels. Chris. <laughs> and you can find that wherever you find your podcasts. My host is Spotify. You can find me on uh, podcasters.spotify.com slash dr who sorry slash doctor who lit d o c t o r w h o lit. <laughs> Mark, where can we find you? Um, I am on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Still is. Um, you can get me. It's Mark underscore Doddick, spelt D-O-D-Y-K. And you can find me on Instagram as well. And it's just Mark Doddick, all lowercase, all one word. And Fraser. I am also on the platform still known as Twitter. Is <laughs> at Felix Fraser, all one word, Fraser, spelt with a Z like Mr. Hines. Um, podcast-wise, you will just find me orbiting the mavity well of other people's podcasts um, <laughs> you know have mike will chat so if you want me on just let us know and you'll find me on on twitter as at sci underscore heart and blue sky as at sci heart and you'll find me on whichever podcast anyone will ask me on <laughs> um, coming up very shortly i'm doing doctor who literature <laughs> You'll be on the very next episode that I release, The Myth Makers, target novelization number 97. Mm-hmm. And if you want to chat with if you want to chat with some of Simon's doppelgangers, then just leave out that underscore on Twitter. It's really fun. They love being involved in Doctor Who chat. <laughs> the other Simon hearts out there. They do. 
So thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. Goodbye. Bye.